Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most successful rock guitarists, songwriters, and singers of his generation, Peter Frampton. Starting out playing in bands when he was just 12 years old, Peter scored three top 20 hits in the UK just a few years later with his first band, The Herd. Shortly after that, Peter joined forces with Steve Marriott of The Small Faces to form the band Humble Pie, recording four studio albums as well as the critically acclaimed double live album Humble Pie Rockin' the Fillmore. As that album climbed the charts, Peter left Humble Pie to go solo, releasing four studio albums before ascending to stratospheric heights with his 1976 album Frampton Comes Alive, which stayed at number one on the Billboard album charts for a remarkable 10 weeks and is now certified eight times platinum. It's one of the best-selling live albums of all time. Known for his signature talkbox guitar sound, Peter's hit songs, including Show Me the Way, Do You Feel Like We Do, Baby I Love Your Way, and I'm In You, were inescapable on radio in the late 70s. Despite setbacks, including a near-fatal car accident in 1978, Frampton continues to record and tour, earning a Grammy Award in 2007 for his album Fingerprints. Peter's best-selling memoir, Do You Feel Like I Do, written with Alan Light, was released by Hachette Books in October of 2020. And his most recent album, Frampton Forgets the Words, was released in April of 2021. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very, very happy today to be joined by the legendary singer, songwriter, guitarist, and author of this fabulous book. Welcome from Nashville, Tennessee, Peter Frampton. Hi, Peter. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Pete. Yes, I, I am Pete. You are Peter. Hopefully uh, that won't confuse anyone. Really excited to be talking to you today. I was telling you a little bit a couple of minutes ago about why we do this program, and, and we do it as an educational piece, not only for the staff of Atlantic and the Warner Music Group, but also you know, for the world now via podcast. And it's such a privilege to be able to speak to people like yourself who have played such a big part in you know, making the music that's become the soundtrack for all of our lives. And I learned so much reading Peter's great memoir, Do You Feel Like I Do?, which was written with our friend Alan Light and released by Hachette in October of 2020. There's a great framing in the book about your fabled guitar. And if anyone knows the iconic album cover of Frampton Comes Alive, you are holding a guitar that is now known as Phoenix. And you start the book by talking about the plane crash and losing this guitar that was given to you in the early 70s before the famous Humble Pie live recording. But talk about why you and Alan decided to frame the book that way. Well, we were thinking that 
that guitar really, once I joined Humble Pie, which was the first time America sort of knew of me and Humble Pie, then I got that guitar given to me and it seemed to echo or be in a parallel line. It went up and down with my career. And we both traveled similar angle, as it were. (laughs) And it's such a phenomenal ending to the story that we thought that that would be a good thing to keep coming back, you know, bring it in when 1970 comes. Then we talked about how I got given the guitar by Mark Mariana. I love him. Um, (laughs) And he's got every first edition of every Frampton Gibson since, I might tell you, (laughs) Uh, because he's such that was such an iconic gift. It's funny because I lost the guitar in 1980 and my career took a dive, you know, and before I got it back, I managed to resuscitate my career and got a Grammy for an instrumental record, which blew me away. It was definitely something that we needed to keep coming back to. That guitar is just the end of the story is is on my wall in my music room right now. (laughs) So it's so fantastic. Really an incredible story, the fact that it was, you got it back in 2011? Yes, ish, around there, yeah. So around 30 years after you lost it. Yes. And what a great comparison to, you know, a phoenix rising from the ashes and that we're sitting here so many years later talking to you about your career and it keeps going. I just read that you're going to be playing a gig this summer to celebrate Buddy Holly's 85th birthday. Yes. So even though you've slowed down a little bit touring versus the crazy, insane tour schedule that you had dealing with some health issues now, that you'll still be in Lubbock, Texas with some great people like Dwayne Eddy in, in oh my God. this fall. Yeah. yeah, this summer. Yeah, I have to say this. The other day, I've known Dwayne for many years, obviously, but we hadn't spoken in a while. And then I'm just... I don't know, about six months ago, maybe a little more. The phone rings, I look, it says Dwayne Eddy. I said, oh, wow. (laughs) Hi, Peter, is this really Dwayne Eddy? He said, yeah. So at the end of the conversation, he said, I don't think about you much, but I did today. (laughs) He's a character. I love him. So at the end of the conversation, I said, now, this gives me the possibility to call you when you least expect it. He said, don't you threaten me. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I did about three months ago before this gig came up. And I called him. I said, I told you. He said, what? I said, I told you I'd called you when you least expected it. He said, well, you're damn right. <laughs> so he's, he's just a character. So That's I'm right. so thrilled to be part of this with James Burton and everybody. Yeah, I mean, an incredible lineup to celebrate Buddy Holly's 85th birthday this summer. Yeah. I would love to go back to the beginning and just talk about your childhood a little bit and how you came up to discover music. I love that your childhood was pretty normal in terms of how I read it in the book. You had loving parents, you had a loving brother, you grew up with grandparents, you started playing your grandmother's banjo Laley at age seven. What are your early memories of music growing up in Kent County in England? Well, so if you think when I first became aware of music, I was probably five or six, and we were listening to the BBC which was very restrictive. (laughs) The light program, it was called. And we would hear 
one rock or skiffle was then, right? Skiffle, Lonnie Donegan, people like that, Wally White, and, and we had our homegrown skiffle stuff. And that's when I first started listening to that on the radio. But then my parents would listen to big band jazz. And then when we got our record player, it was a, called a Dan set. It's everybody had the same one in England. The top opens up, you know, and you've got a volume that turns it on and it's on. That's it. And then my dad came home with that. And he also, either for Christmas or that at that time, he brought home two albums. The first two albums was, for me, was The Shadows. Cliff Richard had a backing band, Our English Elvis, and they were called, to start with, The Drifters. That's how cut off we were from America. <laughs> so The Drifters got a little upset and they told the, sha- the Drifters, English Drifters, change your name. So they did, to The Shadows. So The Shadows were the first electric guitar influence for me, apart from not knowing it was Scotty Moore on right. the Elvis records. Right, right. Uh, not knowing it was Chet Atkins on a lot of the, the country stuff. And... I'm trying to think of two singers in the 50s, brothers. Everly Brothers. Thank you. He produced and played all the guitar just about on those records. Right. Who knew? So anyway, I was listening to all these incredible players. And then my dad brought this other album home, and which I hated with a passion. Huh. It was Django Reinhardt Hot Club de France with Stéphane Grappelli on violin. Probably a little too sophisticated for a seven-year-old. Well, it wasn't electric to start with. It was this horrible sounding acoustic, as far as I was concerned at the time. And I'd play my Shadows record on Saturday morning, and I couldn't get out of the room quick enough before Dad put on, as my kids called it when they were younger, Dad's listening to that silent movie music again. (laughs) So that was it. And then gradually, every time he put it on, I would stay a little longer, stay a little longer, and then, then it was a two-album listening session. From then on, every every Saturday, we'd listen to the Shadows album, and then we'd listen to Django and Stefan, you know. Amazing players. A lot of people in America don't know the name Hank Marvin. Hank no. Marvin was the guitar player, and still is, in the Shadows. He was your first real guitar influence, and I love the fact that on your Grammy-winning instrumental album, In 2006, 2007, he plays with you. Yes, The Shadows, actually, minus one member. Bruce Welsh had something else to do that day, but I got Brian Bennett, the bass player, and Hank, and we spent a whole nearly 20 hours because he had to go back to Australia, but we were in England. We were in London at Mark Knopfler's studio, and we had written, both of us had written bits for a song, and we put them together in a tune. And I got to play with the shadows. And that was, it's hard to describe the emotion about that because it's almost, I, I'm going to get hell for this. It's almost like meeting God. Away from, well, they say Clapton was God. So to me, <laughs> musically, Hank was God. Right. Know? Without Hank Marvin and the shadows, you may not have been inspired to pick up your own guitar. No. Uh, absolutely not. And that led to all every guitarist under the sun, obviously, being an influence and me listening to as much as I could. So but Hank, he sends me new stuff that he, what do you think about this mix? And wow. I send him rough things to Australia. And it's just 
to be friends with uh, someone that inspired you to pick up a guitar is pretty pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. And you know, the book is filled with colorful characters like that, people that we all know of and all admire, but not necessarily knowing that they intersected with you from an early age. Talk about your dad's student at Bromley. <laughs> Well, he had a few, but I know who you're talking about. The year before I went to the school myself, because I was still in, uh, we call it junior school. Um, you call it something else here. So high school was basically where I met this chap. And we went uh, on a Saturday before I went to the school. We went, there was a garden fete, like a little stands and selling stuff. And a local newscaster came and opened the fete and everything. It's a garden party, basically. And I noticed this band on the steps of the main entrance of the hall of the school. And they were great. I'd heard about them, the Conrads, and I'd heard that they were really good. And so I noticed the guitarist straight away because he had a white Fender Stratocaster in like, this must have been 1962, which you don't get Stratocasters in England. So it was like, I was, you know, I was drooling at that. And then the singer just, I couldn't stop looking at the singer and marveling at what he was doing. He was playing sax and he was singing Elvis Presley songs and Buddy Holly, you name it. It was Dave Jones, who we know now as David Bowie. So I said to my dad, I said, who's that on the end, that guy with the hair sticking up? And he said, Oh, that's Jones. He said, very good student, and, and he's very talented musically, I think. Yes, yeah, very good. So I said, oh, good, because he's great, Dad. So then the next year I go to the school, and at the first lunch break, I go straight to his table <laughs> and say, my dad's <laughs> Mr. Frampton. <laughs> I saw you on this. I saw you play, you know. And he said, oh, come on, sit down. So we were. that was it. And we've been friends ever since. And we would bring our guitars to school and stick them in my dad's office hmm. for nine o'clock and then get them out at lunchtime and, and jam. And you bonded over a mutual love of Buddy Holly and some of the other amazing, you know, influences of the day. Yeah. And George Underwood was the other, the three amigos. Uh, he was the other one. And he is the incredible fine artist. In fact, that's his right behind how can I, I get my, right, oh, that I one see. Right. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's, that's George, tremendous artist. And he, he did Ziggy Stardust cover right. and he's done loads of things for David. They were best buddies until we lost Dave. And David Bowie played such an important part in your life many years later, which we'll get to, but mm -hmm. all of these iconic figures start coming into your life when you are such a young age, so many things happen to you so young. I think that we sometimes forget that when Frampton Comes Alive was the biggest album in the universe, you weren't even 30 years old. You started really, really young. And speaking of that, some of your early bands, you were in a band called Moon's Train, which was managed and produced by Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. That's correct. Yes. I was known as a young upstart guitar player, very young. I was 13 or 14, and I was working on Saturdays at this shop in Beckenham 
called Robertson's. It was a department store, but it had a huge music department. I mean, we had Stratocasters, we had Gretches, we had all these instruments, drums, the whole bit, trumpets, the, everything. And I, my job was to come in Saturday, underage, obviously, so I couldn't really work a regular job. And my job would be to restring the guitars and clean the trumpets. <laughs> and then guys would come in from all the best local bands and we jam on a Saturday. So this one Saturday, this guy comes in, his name's Tony Chapman. And I'd heard of him. He was playing with a band called The Herd, but he'd left that band. The, the Herd was, I know it comes up later on in the story, but The Herd were around much longer before I joined them. So anyway, he said, yeah, I've left The Herd. And he said, I'm forming this semi-pro band, you know, because we all work now. And this guy from Denny Mitchell's band, this guy from this one, that one. So I'd like to ask you to play in the band. I said, ooh. He said, can you do, you know, can you do weekends? Because that's all we'll be doing. I said, well, maybe Friday and Saturday. But, you know, I got a math test on Monday morning. <laughs> I can't do Sunday nights. So I went home to tell my mom and dad this. And I could hear that guttural from my dad. And <laughs> but my mother's going, tell me more, you know. And so... They said, yeah, okay, as long as you don't play Sunday nights. Well, guess what? <laughs> we played Sunday nights as well. And my horrible math teacher knew that. And he gave us an arithmetic test every Monday just to mess with me because <laughs> I was half asleep. Otherwise, we'd do it later in the day. But he did that for me personally. Mm. So anyway, Tony was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones. And he actually brought in his, one of his buddies, Bill Wyman. They needed a bass player. So he said, well, I've got this friend, Bill. He's a bass player and he's got a van. So Bill was in, but very soon after that, Tony was out right. of the stones right. and replaced by Charlie. So Bill said to Tony, I owe you <laughs> kind of big, you know, we didn't know at the time, but how big that was. And uh, he said, when you get a band together, I'll fund it and produce it and, you know, we'll take you in the studio, whatever. So at the age of 14, I was now in the studio with Bill, this band. We were called The Preachers before it was called Moon's Train. So we were The Preachers and Bill was in the control room. And apart from the first session, all the other sessions for an album that barely got finished was Glyn John's the engineer's engineer. So I kind of started at the top in every aspect. I mean, I was still in short pants during the week because I was at school. So it's kind of weird. And then Bill started using me on sessions with these incredible session players. He noticed more than anybody else hmm. that I was a potential lifer. <laughs> well, you ended up playing such iconic studio work, you know, for those who don't know, Peter's all over the iconic George Harrison, All Things Must Pass album that was recorded in 1970, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. In yes. 1966, you joined the band The Herd that you were just talking about. You were 16 years old. The band ended up having a bunch of really big hits in England. You yeah. sang lead.
you still in school at this point? You're still having the math tests? No, no, there was no way that I could. They were a fully professional band. I knew the herd because I'd go and sit in with them. I was very precocious and I'd bring my guitar and I'd say, you really need me to sit in with you tonight. <laughs> go, oh, okay. I'm pushy. I got it from my mother. So Andrew Bowne and Gary Taylor, the two singers in the band, came and saw me play with the Preachers, Moonstream. And after the show, they took me off for a drink and said, look, would you consider turning professional and joining the herd? They asked me to play the summer with them because it was okay because I wasn't at school. But then at the end of the school vacation or during that, they said, would you think about going professional and joining the band? I said, well, there's a fat chance of that because my dad's a teacher. He won't want me dropping out of school. I said, but I can ask. So I went home and here we have to explain something about my mother. My mother, Peggy, she was at school. She was in a school play. And one of the leading dame, uh, older actresses, you get given the name dame when you reach a certain level of acting in England as a woman. And this lady came and saw my mother act in whatever it was and afterwards offered her a scholarship to RADA, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is the bee's knees of if you're an actor, you just wish you could go there, or if you're a trainee actor. So anyway, she went home, she told her mother, all I need is the 50 pounds entrance fee, but uh, everything else is free. It's a scholarship. I get four years of college. And her mother turned around. We're talking about the 20s, 1920s, right. something like that, late 20s maybe. Her mother turned, my grandmother turned around to her and said, you want to be considered a prostitute? An actress is just a glorified prostitute. Hey. And she said, you will go out and get a job as a secretary and you'll bring home the money for the family. Wow. So my mother's hopes were dashed, you know, right there. There was no way. It was Victorian England. You did what you were told, you know. Fast forward to when I walk into the living room and sit mom and dad down to tell them about this offer I'd got from the herd. And I looked at my father's eyes and they became very small and his face tightened up, you know. You want to do what? You want to drop out of... And so my mother goes, Owen, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Because now... I didn't realize what she was doing. She was, that took her right back to when she walked in to talk to her mother. Right. And said, I've got this scholarship for Rada. Same thing, really, for me, it might as well have been. And so she convinced so your dad that it was okay. She looked at me, winked, and said, Leave it with me. Wow. And I don't know what she had to do, but she uh, she got, <laughs> she got me permission to join the herd. But my dad was my first manager and said, okay, well, if you went out, you dropped out of school and you went to work for the post office, <laughs> you'd make 15 pounds a week. So I want you to get at least 15 pounds a week. So they agreed to that. And then we started making some money and they couldn't afford to pay themselves 15 pounds a week, let alone me. So then they started making money. And all of a sudden, one week, the road manager who would give out the money gave me my 15 pounds and gave the other three players 30 pounds. I said, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, 
your dad said, you know, as long as you got 15 pounds a week. So I fired my dad. (laughs) (laughs) So the herd ended up touring with the who the herd ended up touring with the kinks and you befriended Keith Moon and John Entwistle. There are a lot of very colorful anecdotes in the book about that. You befriended Ray Davies. You know, you talk about you were telling him how much you admired Pete Townsend's songwriting. He, you know, he he candidly disagreed with you a little bit. You know, there are a, a lot of a lot of great stories in the book about things like that. Yeah, so I omitted to tell him tell Ray that I loved him, you know, as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then the herd becomes, you know, a really successful band in the mid to late 60s, but the songs are being written by the managers of the band and they're much more pop and they're much more what we call pro-songwritery. And you become literally called the face of 68, where something that will end up, you know, haunting you a little bit in your career, where your good looks sometimes get pushed in front of the musicality and your playing and your writing. And so you're the face of 68, the herd, the other guys in the band are not thrilled with that. The herd starts deteriorating. It wasn't really your type of music. And then at the age of 18, you join Steve Marriott from the Small Faces to form a new band called Humble Pie. That's correct. It's all correct. You have the whole (laughs) thing correct. I studied for the arithmetic (laughs) test, Peter. And Steve Marriott leaves the Small Faces, forms a band with you called Humble Pie. Steve actually wanted you to join the Small Faces, but that didn't work out. He leaves the band. And then the UK press, under the kind of the spell of your manager of Humble Pie in the beginning, was he your manager or was he your label, Andrew Lou Goldham? He was both. (laughs) It's totally illegal now, but he was both. (laughs) And for those who don't know that name, it comes up from time to time on our show. Andrew is long associated with the Rolling Stones as their early managers. And And I I speak to him regularly. Yeah, you refer to him in the book as a dear lifelong friend. He had a label called Immediate Records and signed the band – to immediate records. You liked playing with Steve Marriott because it was dual lead guitars and there were no rules in Humble Pie like there were some rules in the herd. So you were having a great time. Yeah, it was very much more a jam band. We were an early jam band and that was the perfect thing for me because we all brought songs into the rehearsal room and we tried everybody's song. It was totally democratic. If Jerry, the drummer, came in with a song, we learned it. If it got used, that one thing or another. But so it was very, very free. The reason that Steve wanted to partner with me, I think, was as much as he can't help himself, couldn't help himself being a front man, he didn't like it at the same time. And he wanted to share that with somebody else. And we definitely shared the limelight, you know, in that band, even though he was the main lead singer. It was kind of Mick and Keith in a right, way. So right. It was the best possible band I could ever have been in for my guitar playing. You're still a teenager at the time, too. You're so young and all this is happening to you. Humble Pie has a big top five hit called Natural Born Boogie in the late 60s. Jeez. Natural born woman. Natural born woman. 
debut album, As Safe As Yesterday, As Safe As Yesterday Is, rather, was one of the first albums to be described by the term heavy metal in Rolling Stone in 1970. And then you guys, when you toured in 1969, your special guest on tour was David Bowie. So it all kind of comes full circle. Doesn't it? Yeah, it's, which it's, is really great reading the book because you never know what who's going to be on the next page. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, it's been quite amazing, you know, because of David, obviously, I've been and done things that I never would have done. Because of Bill Wyman, I've done things that I never heard. Every stage of my career has been in the session period after I left right, Humble Park. right. I met so many different people playing on. It's such a small scene in England right. that you couldn't help but bump into everybody. Right. Well, the next character that's introduced to the story is not English, but is American. And that is the infamous American music manager, D. Anthony, who Correct. ends up managing Humble Pie. And when Immediate Records, Andrew Legoldum's label, went under in 1970, D. sets up meetings for other labels to sign the band, you end up signing after a brief period in your mind where you were going to sign to your dream label, Atlantic, which is where we're from today, you know, doing this interview mm -hmm. from today. You end up signing with AM Records and the AM debut album for Humble Pie, a third Humble Pie album overall, came out in 19. 70 or 71, I'm sorry, I don't have that. But it was during that time that you acquired your famed Phoenix guitar. And I have to correct you on one thing. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, there's only one thing that's the, the timeline there is we signed to AM before, before D. Right. right, which is so important, was, which is an important fact because he <laughs> couldn't commission the royalties. I'm sorry. Exactly. <laughs> they came straight to our. And Steve said, oh, well, we'll just have one bank account and it'll all come in there and we'll all have checkbooks. I said, we absolutely won't. <laughs> we'll have four bank accounts and the money will go. You can spend yours, but you can't spend mine. So anyway. <laughs> so what, what was that experience like? I mean, D. Anthony coming from New York must have been very different from the characters you were meeting in the yes. UK. Yes. The reason we chose to meet Dee was that Greg Ridley, bass player in Humble Player, had been in a band called Spooky Tooth. And they were managed and on the same label, uh, Chris Blackwell. Island. Right. Island. So when Chris Blackwell's acts, like Joe Cocker and this lot, go to America, he didn't want to manage over there. He just wanted to take care of them because he had enough to do with the label or whatever. So he partnered with D to take on these English acts that were ready to move into American music scene. Got it. So Greg said, well, I know a really good manager. He's got a lot of clout in America, D Anthony. And so he said, well, okay, let's meet him. So he flies to England and we meet him. And I thought this guy looks, I don't know. I know he's Italian and he's kind of looks, got that, I'm not going to say the word look, you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he was a charming man as well as being ruthless. Uh, I think the term and, is colorful. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but he was, he was funny. He was, you were like part of his family. 
he had this real soft side to him. But when it came to finances, he used to say, yeah, counting out the money in a mirror, you know, one for you, which is for, really for me, <laughs> and one for me, one for you and one for me. And he used to tell that story, you know. And the other thing he used to say was, whenever someone comes to me and says, you haven't paid me for this, I just say, I don't have it. Well, I got the, I don't have it, at a specific point in my career and I took him to court, you know, so anyway. Well, yeah, there, there's a whole kind of like the highest highs and the lowest lows with the Anthony, but there's also a very colorful scene in the book where you're in a meeting with D and there's a gentleman you don't recognize. You have <laughs> to pass a whole bunch of different security guys to get to this meeting. And then D and this gentleman start speaking in Italian. And that's when you know something's going on. Yeah. Now, his name has escaped me. I think it's Joey something in the book. Right? Joey P. Right. Joey Pagano. Joey Pagano, who was Lucky Luciano's hitman. Hey. Or one of them. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so I arrive and there's these, on every outside, there's a big limo guy standing outside the limo, ill-fitting suit. And then inside by the elevator, there's another guy, ill-fitting suit, very tall, big, muscular. I get up to the vestibule outside the door, it's on Park Avenue. And uh, there's another ill-fitting suit with a, a large gentleman in it. And he knocks on the door for me which I thought was strange. <laughs> and then I come in and Dee's talking in a voice that I've never heard before. Oh, hi, Peter. Uh, come in. Um, yeah. Uh, did you, uh, this is, um, this is Mr. Pagano. <laughs> um, hey, call me Joey. <laughs> call me Joey P. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. So we go into the den and we're talking and he said, do you like this man, uh, D'Anthony? I said, yeah, he's great. He said, a good manager. He'll look after you, you know. When he looked after Humble Pie and he looked after me, he had to pay Joey P a little bit on the side. Right. But anyway, that's beside the point. There's a scary scene in that meeting where you later find out that the conversation that they were having in Italian was D diffusing a hit that these guys yeah. wanted to put out on the legendary Frank Barcelona, you know, which is just nuts. You know, we had a guest on this program a while ago, Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells. Yes, yes. And Tommy was signed to Morris Levy at Roulette Records and had a similar situation where he loved Morris Levy, but Morris Levy stole $40 million worth of his money. But he still yeah. realizes that if no Morris Levy, there's no Tommy James. And I'd like to read a couple of sentences from page 218 of your book, which is a similar situation with DeAnthony, where you said, for many, many years, I just hated what DeAnthony had done. I didn't hate him, but I hated what he did, how short-sighted he was, how greedy he was. But would I be sitting here now today if I hadn't met D'Anthony or had him manage me? No. My life could have been drastically different. He had some great points, so I've learned to put that behind me. It takes a while sometimes to understand, and this helps me every time. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's, that's right. You know, I didn't know that that saying till much later, but it definitely fits in this situation, you know? 
and things happen for a reason. Fate is fate. It happens. I mean, I don't know whether destiny is pre-planned or not. None of us know that. But as bad of a character as he was, criminal character, <laughs> there was another side to him that was a great manager. I have to say that because it's true. Right. And really propelled you musically to yes. probably, you know, higher heights than you could have ever imagined. I believe so, yeah, because, you know, he really pushed A&M to do everything possible, apart from, you know, when he started stealing my money, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you end up leaving Humble Pie, not before you recorded performance Rock in the Fillmore, which, you know, was such an incendiary recording where you can hear how electric and energetic the band is in a live setting. It's almost like you were planning the seeds to come for a solo live Peter Frampton album, three albums in, four albums in, similar to what you did with yes. Humble Pie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we recorded Rock in the Fillmore, it was the culmination of all the touring we'd done so far. And our records were good and some of them were great, but it didn't have, it's like the Who. The Who make great records, but when you see them live, it's a different band. Right. It's like explosive. And right. that's exactly what Humble Pie were. We were explosive live. I want you to love me. And by the time the live Humble Pie album came out, you had already left the band. You know, you recorded on that album, but you had left the band to go solo. And before we talk about the solo albums, I would love to talk about Pete Drake for a second. Mm. Tell yes. everybody how you met Pete and Pete teaching you a signature sound that you uh, continue to show the world to this day. Well, when I was very young, there's a station called Radio Luxembourg in Luxembourg that used to aim itself at England. We weren't supposed to pick it up, but we did. It was the only radio station at night you could hear American music, right. rock and roll. Right. So we'd all, all the kids would listen to it. Well, their call sign was 208 on your AM dial, but the sound was... It was like a talk box sound, you know? And that stuck with me. So fast forward to the George Harrison sessions at Abbey Road for All Things Must Pass. And we've done a couple of tracks and I played acoustic sitting next to George for that. George says that he's got Pete Drake's coming over from Nashville because he's going to play on some of the more country songs. Like if Not For You that George wrote with Bob Dylan and, mm. and all these other ones. And I said, oh, fantastic. And he said, yeah, he's he's on every country record you can you ever know. So I said, oh, gosh. So luckily, Pete sits exactly opposite me and sets up his pedal steel. And I'm sitting, George is on to my right, and I'm here, and then Pete's facing me. And he sets up his pedal steel, and we did a track, and then probably If Not For You or something. If not for you. Baby, I couldn't even find the door 
so then Pete says, Peter, you want to hear something different? I said, yeah, what you got? So I thought he was going to play me a lick on the pedal steel. Well, they, he gets his little bag out, gets this thing, box, puts it on here, plugs it in and gets the wires and plugs it in. I don't know what he's doing. And then he gets out a plastic tube and he puts this tube, <laughs> fixes it to this box and he puts the tube in his mouth. <laughs> and then he said, listen, and he plays the pedal steel and he starts singing to me. The pedal steel starts talking and singing to me. And I mean, I got, I've got them now. I, <laughs> I've got goosebumps the size of, you know, an elephant. <laughs> and I'm going, that's that sound. From Radio from, Luxembourg, right? From Radio mm -hmm. Luxembourg. But it's even better. <laughs> and there's actually on YouTube just audio of me and George laughing as Pete Drake is playing it for the very first wow, time. Wow, that's amazing so, that that was captured. Yeah, someone sent that to me the other day. Wow. Yeah, so it's 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 there. It's <laughs> logged in. I mean, you've become so synonymous with the talk box effect that there's a funny aside in the book where Billy Joel asks you, do you think a, <laughs> you think a piano would sound good through a talk box? <laughs> well, and there's the end to that story too. Because I said, you can put, if you can mic it up, you can put anything through the talk box. He said, oh, cool. Cool. And that was before he had all his huge hits. And then for his birthday, last birthday, he was playing one of his mini stints at Madison Square Garden. And he asked me to come and play with him. So before we started playing, I came out and I brought him a talk box. And I said, here's the talk box I should have given you 30 years ago. <laughs> And I told him about it at the sound check. I said, if you just said, hello, New York, through this thing, <laughs> the crowd would go, absolutely. It's your crowd, obviously. Well, he was a little nervous about doing that, but I, I bet you he's doing it now. There you go. But um, yeah, it's That's so awesome. I got to play a couple of numbers with him. That's awesome. So you start putting out solo records, you know, under the name Peter Frampton, under the name Frampton's Camel, four solo albums in, they're all doing fairly well to the point where you can go and play bigger rooms and really start amassing an American audience, you know, mm -hmm. as well as, as overseas. But following the same arc as Humble Pie, like we said, after the fourth studio album, you record a live album. And you recorded it mainly at Winterland in San Francisco. You present it to Jerry Moss and Jerry Moss at A&M Records says, you know, and I love this because, you know, you don't think that a record executive, a record company president is going to say this. He's like, there's not enough music. Where are all the other songs? Exactly. I'll never forget his face because he was sitting in front of the console. So I couldn't see him while he was listening. We just mixed a single album because Dee said, let's not make the budget too high. You're already like on the fence with A&M right now. You're right. doing okay, but not right. great. Right. You know, so there was only five songs on, on the single album. So Jerry's head just comes slowly up over the console and he says, where's the rest? Because <laughs> he had been at the shows, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he said, where's Wind of Change? Where's this? Where's that? Where's Show Me the Way? Show Me the Way wasn't on there. Wow. So I'm you had to go out and do more shows and record yes. more music, right? 
Yeah. He said, well, go record some more. I said, oh, fantastic. So uh, we went out, did about six more shows, and we got Baby I Love Your Way from Plattsburgh College in Plattsburgh. But don't hesitate. got uh, Show Me The Way from uh, Long Island, a hockey arena out there. And that was it. We came back and we had, I already had the acoustic set, which we hadn't mixed. So we mixed the acoustic set as well. And bingo, we had enough songs for a double album. And the iconic album cover, was that also Jerry's idea to make it a gatefold so you could see the full, you know, yes. the full body? Yeah, I was at A&M on the lot in Los Angeles. We were talking about doing the cover and everything. And I was looking through, they had about six potential cover shots, you know, and I saw that one and I just said, well, that's cool. That's really cool. But it's, you know, you're going to miss the bottom. You know, it's going to cut off if you just. So anyway, so I called, I called on the phone on the lot. I called Jerry's office and I said, Jerry, can you, can you come by and I'm, betwixt and between on this album cover and it's important he said i'll be right over so jerry comes up and he's looking at all the photos and he said this one's great and that's the one i the album cover and i said but the only thing is jerry it'll just get cut off and the whole deal is it should be the long you know the whole frame and he said turn it sideways wow and he said also if you look on the cover there's two lights behind me. One of them is real and one of them is airbrushed wow. in. Didn't, so it never balanced. knew that. Never knew yeah. that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the album comes out within two and a half months. It's the number one album in America. It stays at number one for 10 weeks. It's certified eight times platinum, one of the best selling live albums in history. At one point, it was the biggest selling album of all time, beating out Tapestry by Carole King. You're 26 years old that can't be psychologically normal no it, it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like all your birthdays and christmases plus you know an honorary degree somewhere right. at once you know right. it was crazy it was a crazy period well someone says in the book that it's almost like you were strapped to a rocket ship and sent to the moon and you got off and you were by yourself cameron crow right said that. right yeah, it's very true. And I liken it to the, all of a sudden, I go from being like everybody else, which I obviously still am, but and still was, but 
I could go to the record store, I could walk down the street, I could go shopping, I could do, I didn't have to think about, nobody knew who I was. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight, I'm now super recognizable and it culminates in New York. Obviously at the venues, it was crazy, but I got in a limo. We were going somewhere with Vince Morrow, one of Dee's assistant managers, and we get a flat and we're on like Broadway or something in Manhattan. And the limo driver says, well, I got to I got to call out another car. He said, but I'm going to try and change it. So I have to get out of the limo and we're standing on the corner of, you know, 50 something and Broadway, whatever it was. All of a sudden, it's like I was the Pied Piper and people just, it just span out of control. All of a sudden I had like a hundred people around me. And that's when I realized that, you know, how crazy this was. Right. It's not normal. No. So I ended up, they told me, don't ever come out of your hotel room. We'll have a guard outside there. Uh, we took the whole floor and we had a guard outside the elevator. A lot of bands do that so that they take the floor. So no one's allowed on that floor because otherwise it was like, before we realized that, you know, we never got any sleep because fans were finding out where our rooms right. were banging on the door. Right. You know? so I took advantage of that a little, but not much. Well, there's also, you know, the requisite rock star biography. You know, you're expecting the sex and the drugs to go along with the rock and roll. And there's, you know, a fair share of it in the book. But after Frampton Comes Alive really becomes this rocket ship, things in your mind start to go the other way. They kind of like when you go to the moon, I guess there's only one way to go after that. Yeah, it's it's true. I've often said, you know, I prefer it went to only number two. Right. Or it wasn't the biggest record of all time for any period. Maybe one of the planets, not the moon, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But, yeah, it's like Hootie and the Blowfish. Right. It was everywhere, right. like comes alive, and then nothing. But then he left and has a wonderful career now. So. Right, in Nashville. Like yeah, himself. In Nashville, yeah, and he reclaimed, right. you know, and I'm sure it was hard for him. Right, too. but the same way that you have, because as the book continues the narrative and tells the story, obviously the follow-up to one of the biggest albums of all time comes with a lot of downward pressure, and yeah. you don't speak fondly of the sessions, which became the album I'm In You, which also that song I'm In You was a massive Massive yeah. hit. I remember as a kid, the summer of 77, it's all I heard on the radio. I'm in you. You're in me. I'm in you. You're in me. I took out that record over the weekend, getting ready for today. It still sounds really good. Really oh, good. You. It should have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, there were probably some decisions that either you made or D 
Anthony kind of steered you in the direction of making those decisions where when you look back, you may not have, you know, may have said, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that Rolling Stone cover without the shirt on. I probably shouldn't have starred in the movie with with the Bee Gees of Sgt. Pepper, you know, things like that. But, you know, you said it yourself with the serenity prayer in the book. God, give me, you know, the strength to know the difference. And talking about the phoenix that rises from the ashes, you know, I love the story of the Fingerprints album in 2006. Not only did it bring you Hank Marvin and and Bill Wyman and, and Charlie Watts all back into your life, but guys from a new generation like Mike McCready and Matt Cameron from Pearl Jam, there's a tribute to your dad on it. It rightly won the Grammy Award in 2007 for Best Pop Instrumental Album. that it was also your first album on A&M in 24 years. That's a really nice story, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I asked, would it be possible? I know it's now universal, and I said, but would it be possible that we release it? You own A&M. So could, could the label not say A&M? They said, absolutely. Yeah, great so idea. It was wonderful. It was a complete circle for me. And your most recent album, which was Frampton Forgets the Words, released uh, around a year ago in April of 21, the choice of the material was very meaningful to you. And it's a terrific album for anyone who hasn't heard it. But it runs the gamut of, you know, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye from the Motown era to your friends David Bowie and George Harrison. You know, what we didn't talk about is that in 1987, after this downward spiral that you talk about in the book, your friend David Bowie called you first to play on his Never Let Me Down album and then to join him on the Glass Spiders tour, where, thanks to him, you were able to reclaim your place as a proper musician. I think it's the biggest gift anybody has ever given me in as much as I felt that, and you mentioned it at the very beginning, that my looks has been a confusing issue for a lot of people. If you look too good, which I did, I was a cute looking kid, you know, in my early 20s there. And it definitely stunted my growth in people's minds as a guitar player. And that's what I've always been first and foremost. I've always been pushed into singing, pushed into the front cover, pushed into this or that. And all I want to do is play guitar. So my favorite position in a band is the hired gun or the lead guitar player. And David made that happen for me. And he completely turned around people's thinking about, oh, my God the man can play guitar, right? you know? And that was the biggest, I, I, I will thank him till the day I leave the planet. Mm. Dave did me the biggest favor ever. 
Right. Well, there's a quote in your book where you're like, you know, they think I'm a guitar player again. Thank the universe and, <laughs> and thank David Bowie. Um, yes. we're, we're wrapping up, Peter, but I'd be <laughs> remiss if we didn't talk about your reveal in the book about your battle with IBM. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It's something about 10, 12 years ago now. I was hiking. We'd gone away together, my son and I, Julian, and we had this hill to run up. And he ran up it and I was trying to beat him because I always could before. Now I was a very lame second. And I said, there's something wrong with my legs. And I just went, I'm getting old. This is what it is. This is what getting old is all about. Things start to lose, you know, muscle, whatever. So anyway, about a year or two later, we were playing, doing the summer tour and with my band and, uh, I went to kick a beach ball, one of those big ones that they throw around at right. and out and festivals and stuff. And it's a beach ball, for Christ's sake. It's like doesn't weigh anything. I went to kick it, and my left leg gave way, and I fell backwards. Hmm. And we were all, you know, after the show, we were going, you know, that commercial, he's fallen and he can't get up. <laughs> you know, we, we made light of it, and I did too. And I thought, well, what, what the hell? Well, anyway... Three weeks later, two, two and a half weeks later, I bent down, stood on my cable, which shortened it from my foot to my guitar, and I went to stand up. And I just went right back again. And then I said, I've got to see a doctor. Something's wrong here. I'm losing power in my legs. So anyway, long story short, I get diagnosed with IBM by a neurologist here in Nashville. And I said, so what do I do? He said, you call the head of the myositis clinic at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Lisa Christopher Stein. She'll take it from there. So I've been going to Baltimore on and off for the last 10, 11 years now. And uh, there is no cure, but I'm on a trial drug. And I also, from the finale tour, in order to get more potential drug trials, they cost money. So I started the Peter Frampton Foundation for- For research. For, yeah, research, yeah. thank you. And on the finale tour in America and Canada, we raised, initially we raised $300,000. So I gave that to them and people keep on sending money in. Thank you so much anonymously and some with names. And I thank everybody for doing it because it's not just for me. I'm probably a lost cause, but what we're talking about is people in the future catching this. Right. They say it's only 50,000 people in America, if that, but a lot of people don't know what they have because it's so difficult to diagnose. Right. So the unfortunate part is it affects my arms, my hands, and my legs. Right. So my guitar playing is changing. I wouldn't say it's getting worse, but there's things I have to do in order to make it work. Right, differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's different. It's different. But are you still playing out? We obviously, we talked about the Buddy Holly 85th party coming up. We are going to go. The European tour was canceled due to the lockdown in early 2020. We were supposed to go to Europe in May that year. So now we're going in November. We're going for eight shows. Royal Albert Hall. Wow. Be oh, there. I'm going to say, I'm going to say goodbye. Well, I was able to say goodbye in Los Angeles at the Forum. I was able to say goodbye in New York and Madison Square Garden. And it was just, 
it was just fantastic, you know. And so I think the only uh, appropriate way to say goodbye in England is the Royal Albert Hall. Well, that's something to look forward to. I, I would strongly recommend, you know, listening to obviously all of Peter's work, but just listening to the most recent album, Frampton Forgets the Words, your guitar playing still, there is such a purity of tone and joy in the playing. You know, listen to the cover you did of Radiohead's Reckoner, and it's beautiful. You know, it's absolutely, the guitar sings with such an emotional voice. It's really, really a privilege to listen to. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been a privilege to host you, and I appreciate you taking the time and wishing you well and, and hope to see you out there someday. This could go on for another hour and a half. You know that, right? Well, I'm, I'm game if you want. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm moving soon and I've <laughs> got to get packing. So, <laughs> Well, thank you for the book and thank you for all the great music. And, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Peter Fran. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been very enjoyable. See you soon. Thanks a lot to Peter Frampton for being so generous with his time. It's great to hear all the stories behind such a successful career. Peter is still playing select dates on his farewell tour. You can find these dates as well as a link to his memoir and albums at Frampton.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.